Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Yes, I am. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have uh, some great fun today because we get to study the Bible with Dr. Mark Muska. It's always something I enjoy, look forward to, and every time he's on, I learn something. So that will be the case with you as well. If you have a question for Ask the Professor, send it over on the text line, 877-933-2484. In an hour or two, we're going to continue our week of mental health with Jody Goldie, she's going to be uh, with me, and we're going to talk about uh, trauma and trauma counseling. So that's uh, all ahead on the show today. Again, the number to uh, text is 877-933-2484. Dr. Mark Muska, ask the professor. Mark, welcome. Hey, hi, Bill. Nice to hear your voice, and I'm looking forward to this hour because I'm always uh, learning a lot when you're on. I've been poking around lately in Acts chapter 8, Ephesians 1, and John 6. That's what I've been hey, studying which lately. Which one do you want first? Well, I would say, if you don't mind, <clears throat> let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, which is not one of, uh, 2 Corinthians, not one of my options. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So when you are in the judgment seat, are we going to be hearing about the evil we did, or is the evil we rejected Christ? Yeah, I, I sure hope you're wrong. I, I don't want to hear everything. I'm oh. very, very embarrassed. I don't either. Failings in that, yeah. So... Uh, this is, this is a case, Bill, where we have to uh, take it for what it says, that there is a, a judgment that is coming. Uh, Paul doesn't say uh, just non-Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but this is uh, uh, all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so that, uh, uh, the, the, in order to study this, uh, properly, we have to bring in other passages in the Scripture, too, that help us, especially on the topic of judgment. We just don't look at one or two and run with it and uh, sometimes uh, teach something that's against uh, one or two others. And so uh, this uh, judgment seat of Christ is uh, seen in a couple of different ways here, that this is uh, a judgment that Christians mm-hmm. That Christians will go through, and that they will uh, they will uh, uh, have their deeds judged. This is uh, consistent with what, what Paul says in First uh, Corinthians chapter three, when he talks about uh, we will uh, either earn wood, stay, uh, hay, and stubble, or uh, or precious stones with what we do. And uh, and yet Paul's very clear in First Corinthians. He says, "But if all of our works are burned up." as followers of Christ, we are saved, we are saved, but yet as through fire. We don't have much to show for it other than 
putting our faith in the gospel. And so I like to bring that into this passage as well, that it may be talking about this judgment that we will be judged as followers of Christ in the service that we rendered for Christ in our lifetimes. Mm, I like that. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question for him, ask the professor. Text it over, 877-933-2484. Mark, you know, when we talk about good works, um, I don't know if we've ever really defined what good works are. It talks. The Scripture talks about bearing fruit in every good work. And yeah. do we sometimes confuse the gospel with uh, shoveling our neighbor's uh, driveway and saying, well, that's a good work. But mm-hmm. isn't the gospel a truth that needs to be heard and believed? Yeah, uh, that's a really great point, Bill. And I fear that there may be as many as millions of people around the world that confuse those that, uh, first of all, to define what a good work is, it's something that's done that is moral, that lines up with uh, God's commands or what we know to be moral, uh, loving someone, uh, serving them, telling them the truth, that that type of thing. That's not that hard to understand mm-hmm. what good work is. But then the question is, do those good works justify us? That's, that's where I'm afraid, Bill. I think there's so many people that think that, well, you know, how— how am I at peace with God, and how do how will I end up in heaven someday? Well, I'm a good person. Right. And that, you know, the red light in the background's beeping, that, you know, that, that <laughs> one doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work. That's uh, not, uh, not the case. Uh, we have nothing to offer God as far as any kind of good works to justify ourselves. That there are good deeds that people do, to deny that is silly, but... Uh, Paul makes this really, really clear. He he covers all the bases in the first three chapters of Romans, where he talks about it doesn't matter who you are, you never live up to the up to the standards of God to somehow justify yourself. And so, that's the question I like to ask people who are good moral people, churchgoers, is to say that is awesome. Uh, I have to ask you though, are you seeing this as a way to justify yourself before God? And if they say yes, then we have to have a talk to say, no, 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 uh, that that will never justify you before God, uh, because we all, well, there's a couple problems with that. Uh, James makes it clear that if we violate even one of God's standards, we're guilty of it all. So God grades on a complete pass, no pass basis. I used to teach my students about this. If I give them a test that's got 100 questions on it, well, here's the grade distribution. If you get 100, you get an A. If you get 0 to 99, you get an F. And that, that gets their eyes open. You know, they, they yeah. listen to that. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's God's standard. It's not just the work itself, but for whom it's done. Uh, Paul gets into this on a positive side in 1 Corinthians when he says, So then, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. That is the standard that we all fail at that we may do some good thing, but it's to impress some girl if we're a guy, or it's somehow to make us feel better about ourselves, something like that. It's not being done for the glory of God. So there's more into that question than than at first appears, and that's just part of it. We could could go on for a while about this, but that maybe is a a starter. Well, I, I like this topic, and I have a sense of urgency always, 
and I have for most of my life to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is what changes lives and changes hearts. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a lovely thing if you decide to shovel your your neighbor's driveway, but maybe the lady next door thinks, well, you should shovel my driveway. I'm an old woman and you're a strong man. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I don't know, how how is the gospel heard there? I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. Trust me. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. And it might be showing uh, Christian love and being a salt and light in the world. But let's let's not, let's two sides of the coin, let's also open our mouths and speak God's uh, uh, truth of salvation. Yeah, well, that you're bringing in another step of this. I'm talking about it, you know, for good works to try to justify ourselves before God. And that's a fool's errand. We might it as is. well give up yes. on that. Yes. But then you're talking about being a witness to other people by doing nice things for them. And my response to that is, go for it. Oh, absolutely. But don't, but don't limit yourself to just doing things like that. The gospel is a message that people need to hear, and they need to hear both your testimony and your witness to the gospel, and they need to see what kind of people you are and the things that you do that are good. And uh, I like the way Peter gets into this in his uh, letter of First Peter, where he talks about there's going to pe- be people that criticize you, but on account of your good works, they're going to find you blameless because you do the right thing. You're, you're someone who lives in a very high moral standard, and that uh, uh, people can't, uh, they can't argue with that. So it's a both-and. It's not an either-or. I agree, Mark. And you, you can't argue against a life that's being well-lived, right? Right. I would agree. Okay. Uh, Dr. Mark Muska, my guest. And if you have a question, ask the professor, 877-933-2484. Question is, I have wondered why Jesus remains silent at his trials. Do you think his voice and answer would have convicted his accusers? Oh, uh, I'm almost sure it would have. (laughs) Is Is that why he remained silent? Uh, well, there's a couple answers to that. There's plenty of scripture that talks to us about how he is the sacrificial lamb. John says that when he first sees him, John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And as this sacrifice, he goes to the cross willingly. He is not going to argue against it or resist it. He certainly could have, uh, but uh, he knows this is his path, and so he remains silent. It absolutely dumbfounds Pilate. Remember, Pilate gets frustrated with him that he won't defend himself, and uh, he just simply doesn't do that. I think the best way to understand that is he knows this is the path that he was born to take, and so he is willingly sacrificing himself for the sin of the world. I'd like to contrast this, Bill, to the way Paul speaks up for himself when he's on trial. You read this in the book of Acts, and uh, Paul, he appeals to his background as a Pharisee, uh, that uh, when the Pharisees and Sadducees start arguing about him, uh, he also uh, defends himself by uh, telling to the Roman uh, uh, authority that he is a Roman citizen, and you better not misuse a Roman citizen. He gets out of a beating by doing that and probably saved his life. And why did he do that? Well, he knew his job wasn't done yet. He knew there was still more for him to do, and so he defended himself. Jesus, on the other hand, he knows this is the path, and he takes it willingly. 
Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska, my guest, and I'm going to take a break, but when we come back, I hope you, in the break, send over a question or two eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Dr. Mark Muska, my guest and friend, we'll be back in just a minute. Okay, here's something exciting. When you sponsor a child with the Ministry One Child, you are linked with a boy or a girl who will know you by name and treasure the thought that you care. Most of them will pray for you daily. And if you write them, they'll write you too. The child you sponsor will receive not only educational assistance, but supplemental food, clothing, healthcare services, and opportunities for personal love and encouragement, and most of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cost is just $39 a month. That's just a little more than a dollar a day. You can't necessarily change the entire world, but what if you can change the world for one person? Sponsor a child now at MyFaithRadio.com. If you have a question that's been nagging you for a while, something you read in the Bible, something you would love more understanding on, let me know what that question is. I will pass that on to my guest, Dr. Mark Muska. The number to text is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So, Mark, I've been spending a little bit of time in Acts chapter 8, and it's That starts with, and Saul approved of their killing him. They're talking about Stephen. And then it goes on to say in verse, you know, three, uh, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Yep. Not a very nice fellow at this point. This is not a good guy. No. And people are going to have some history with him about the kind of guy he was. Can you imagine going up to someone's home, ripping out the, the men and the women? And what about the kids that are just left and they're putting him, he's putting them in prison? Yeah. I, I don't like the Saul guy. No, I don't think he liked himself afterward either very much. <laughs> yeah. But then God uses him to turn around and write 13 books in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty interesting thing, isn't it? He's got enough fire here to persecute the church, probably like nobody else at that time. And uh, God gets a hold of him and turns him, and he's got fire to do ministry like probably nobody else did in the first century either. So he's got the characteristic; he just needed to be turned in the right direction, and that mm. happened <laughs> when he was uh, he was confronted by Jesus uh, as he was going to persecute. Christians in uh, Syria, in Antioch, uh, Jesus interrupted his trip, and his life never was the same. Yeah. So if we go a little bit further down in Acts chapter 8, I found this fascinating. When Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. (laughs) I find that fascinating. Oh, that's great. You know, this is this Ethiopian. He's a uh, a God-fearer here. He's uh, come to Jerusalem to worship, it says in verse 27. So 
he's not a Jew, but he is definitely interested in the God of Israel. And so uh, Philip here, he's given this opportunity with him, and you're talking here about a guy that's got an open heart. Yeah, so Philip uh, instructs him about the passage in Isaiah and goes and tells him the good news about Jesus. And it wasn't too long after that. He said, well, there's some water. How about I get baptized? So he must have also known about the rituals of baptism and maybe maybe Philip said, believe and be baptized. What do you think uh, transpired? I know we have to speculate here because we don't have the, we don't have it written down, but what do you think? Yeah, we don't know for sure, but it sure would be consistent with the book of Acts because a few chapters earlier on the day of Pentecost, when uh, Peter is speaking to the Jews and he convicts their socks off. I don't know if they wore socks. They had sandals on. <laughs> yeah. But they're, uh, they're convicted. And uh, Luke writes this here, Acts 2.37. It says, Now when they, the Jews, heard this from Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And listen to what Peter says. He says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's plausible that Philip said something similar to that, uh, and the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, here's some water right here, let's, get, let's, let's do it. Mm-hmm. So, I have to tell you a story, too, Bill, that uh, one of my dear friends was in Mexico on vacation with his wife, and during that vacation he was, uh, got to know uh, another couple and his wife, and these people got open their heart to the gospel, and they put their faith in it, and my friend and his wife, they baptized him there right in the, uh, the swimming pool. While wow. And so it's very similar here to what happened yeah. in the What a great story from a vacation. I love that. Yeah. So, Mark, let's just jump back up in Acts uh, chapter 8. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a powerful verse. The Spirit said, go to that chariot and stay near it. And a question came in on the text line, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is talking to you? Yeah, now that's a beauty, isn't it? Oh, it's a whopper. It it gets into a subjective component of Christianity. If we want to know what the Holy Spirit says to us objectively, that we can have confidence in, read your Bible. Uh, If you want to hear God's voice, read the Bible. That's not something that depends on our opinion. Uh, That's true whether you believe it or not. It is God's Word. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I like to start there, Bill, to say this is is rock solid. We don't have to equivocate on this at all. That If we want to hear God's voice, if we want to hear the Spirit speaking to us, read read the Bible. Uh, Get God's Word into your mind and your heart. But then the subjective part comes, and there's plenty of this in Acts and in the New Testament, where it appears as though there's some sort of impression. I don't think Stephen hauled out one of his scrolls of the Scripture here and read this, that the Spirit prompted him to go up to this uh, chariot, but it was an impression. Sometimes it's actually an audible voice that people hear, or they have a tangible dream or vision that God directs them and this is something that is, uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not uncommon either in the Bible. And in fact, today we have plenty of testimonials to this. But when you get into subjective things, that's where you have to put your discernment hat on. And 
make sure that you are testing these things and making sure it isn't someone's imagination or they just had pizza the night before and they yeah. had these themes that night and that kind of thing uh, it, uh, over and against what appears to be the genuine of someone being led by God. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, Bill, you're probably one of them, where you're sitting in a coffee shop or somewhere and you see someone sitting by themselves over in the corner there and there's just an impression you get from the Lord, I think, to go talk to the person. And yeah. sure enough, you do it, and it's a wonderful conversation. Either they put their faith in the gospel, or they're very open, and they want to hear more. And so I, I checked that one on the okay list there to say, yeah, I think uh, I didn't have anything like that on my mind. This was something that the Spirit prompted within me to go talk to this person. I think we have to be open to that. But we can't get carried away with it either and just be closing our Bibles and saying, oh, Jesus, talk to me today, or oh, Spirit. Right, right. That, that, uh, that can uh, go a little too far in the other direction. Yeah, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. As we were talking about Paul and Saul, which is his name before it was changed to Paul, Rosella wants yep. to know, can you ask Mark when Saul's name was changed to Paul? Is it noted yeah. in, particu- in a particular Bible verse? Well, I don't know if it is something that takes place, and it's just a little bit farther over in Acts 13. Okay. Paul here now, uh, he has become a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. He's an incredible witness to Christ because he's, you know, he's got that pharisaical background, so he knows the Scripture back and forth. And once God puts the pieces together for him, it's like, wow, here he goes. You know, he is really a fireball for the gospel. Well, he is, uh, uh, Barnabas brings him to Antioch in Syria to help uh, the church that's growing there that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And so uh, they minister there for quite a long time in Antioch. In fact, this is where they were first called Christians in the Bible. It was at Antioch. Okay. In chapter 13, God now, uh, listen to verse 1. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That sounds subjective, by the way, going back to our last topic. That sounds mm-hmm. like through a prophet or some kind of a means, the Spirit made it clear. So they lay hands on him and pray for him, and Barnabas and Saul, off they go. And they go into Gentile territory now. They leave the, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, and they're out in, in Gentile territory. And Luke makes a notation uh, to answer the question that you got. It's in Luke 13, verse 9 where they are in this uh, different uh, city, and Luke makes a note here, he says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze, and here he goes, and he's ministering. So Mm. that's where the transition appears to be made. When he is out on his first missions trip, he's going to go by Paul now. Yeah, so I'm already smarter. Thank you, Mark. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, lots more of Ask the Professor My professor is my friend, Dr. Mark Muska, so please send your questions over via text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 
We'll be back in just a minute with your questions getting answered. Be right back. All right, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest for the whole hour. It's Ask the Professor. Always a fun and informative hour. Let me know whatever questions you have. The text line is open just for you, 877-933-2484. Mark, when we were, uh, right before break, we were talking about the word Christians. And if I remember correctly, and I might not be remembering correctly, but as the uh, church was rapidly expanding, wasn't the term Christians uh, given to, uh, wasn't it established by the Greeks and it was meant as an insult? I don't know about that. Okay. I'd, I'd have to look at that. Yeah, because uh, I think they would call followers of, you know, Nero Augustus, like Augustinians, and they, they would they would have word place. And when mm-hmm. when these followers of Jesus were talking about Christ, I thought the Greeks called them uh, Christians or or the party of Christ. Huh. Um, I'd have it, to look that up. I'm not sure about that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it shows up in uh, doesn't sh- in 11:26. I think is one of the first times in Acts 11:26 where it, it well, that's shows where they're labeled as Christians. As la- labels as Christians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, all right, uh, some great questions coming in. We always say God sent His only Son. Our understanding of the Trinity is that the Son is God. If the Son is God, then God didn't send his Son, he sent himself. How does that make sense? Yeah, that's where we get into all kinds of mysteries that we have to be careful about, Bill. I get it. No, that I... It's within, the, it's within the mystery and the profound truth that we hold to, and the Church has for uh, 1,700 years, uh, the Trinity. This idea that the Church... It, the church had to hammer this out over about four or five centuries early on exactly what this was as far as who God is and his nature and his personhood. And what they finally came up with, and the church has held this uh, pretty consistently throughout the generations, is that God is three persons who are united in one essence— So, in essence, there is only one God. We are monotheists. Mono means one theist God. So, in essence, or the old-timers would say in substance, he is one in substance. But he also exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, the answer to your question is buried someplace in the middle of that. There were all kinds of church leaders and theologians through those first few centuries that tried to define that out uh, too too much in detail, and they almost always fell into some form of heresy or the other. Either they denied that Jesus was fully God, 
because how can he be God and the Father be God at the same time? Or they uh, denied that they there really are three persons in the Godhead. They said, well, God is only one person, but he manifests himself in three modes or three roles as Father, Son, and Spirit. That one, by the way, is still active today in the church in some quarters, this idea of it's called modalism of God is one person as well as one essence. And the church as a whole has rejected that through its history. So uh, uh, my my caution to people is uh, the Bible doesn't ever use this word Trinity, but that doesn't bother me. There's a lot of theological words we can appeal to that are used to help describe things in the Bible, and Trinity is one of them. And mm-hmm. so I hold to this idea because it's it's right there in the scripture. Uh, you can look at passage after passage where Jesus claims deity, that the apostles, they teach deity of Christ. Uh, uh, one of my favorites for that is uh, over in Colossians chapter 2, where uh, Paul couldn't have said it any clearer that Jesus, the very essence of de- deity, resides in him, that uh he uh, in Colossians two nine. I'm sorry. Uh, he's talking about Christ here, and he says, "For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." And what's really interesting about that, Bill, is when he uses this word deity, he had an option. When Paul wrote this, he knew Greek, and he uses both of these words in his letters, so we know he was aware of both words. He could have used one word that meant divine attributes. So if he wanted to say that Jesus had some divine attributes, he could have used this word. But he uses the other word that's much stronger that means the very essence of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. So he just doesn't have some godlike attributes. He is God the Son. And that, to me, that's definitive as far yes. as making the case for Jesus. And you can do this with the Father and with the Spirit as well. There's plenty of passages where we put together this teaching of the Trinity and I don't think we have to waver on that. It's it's solid in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. I've been uh, spending a lot of time in John chapter six lately. So let's. Look You're at in John. John again. Yeah, I'm back to John. You yeah, never I'm, get out of there, do you? I can't. I can't. I'm stuck yeah. in John. So let's go in John chapter six, where okay. it, it says um, in fifty three and fifty four, Jesus said to them, "Verily, uh, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you." And now here's this important 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, mm-hmm. and I will raise them up on the last day. How am I, how am I supposed to under, how are we supposed to understand that in terms of the promise that he just made and how do we interpret that? Because yeah. the disciples were confused. They go, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And many of them bailed at this point. Um, it says and I, I'm thinking the 12 had just witnessed Jesus feeding the multitudes, and he walked on water the previous day. Yep. At what point did, don't, don't you go, this is him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually comforted a bit, Bill, that those following him there uh, for quite a while now, uh, they're baffled. And so I, I'm okay if I'm baffled a little bit, too. Okay. Yeah, as am I. What, it, what he's saying. I think he's making a an analogy to this thing about in verse 48 he gets this going by saying I am the bread of life. 
And when this is one of his I am statements in John. And what he's saying there is, I am the bread of life. Well, what does bread do? It feeds you. You're nurtured. You live by eating things like bread. And so he's making a point here to say, I am the source of life for you. He does the same thing a few chapters earlier when he talks about uh, uh, the, the living water that he gives, that we have to have water to live as well. He is the only source of life that we can come to. So the Old Testament, they had manna. They lived off of that for a while. But then in verse 51, he's using this metaphor about himself again. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, I don't want to sound like a smart aleck here, Bill, but I got a feeling that Jesus just upped the whole conversation (laughs) To a level where nobody's going to understand this. Uh-huh. You could put the greatest theologians of all time at the table there with Jesus and the apostles. So get Calvin in there and Luther and Zwingli and all these people and sit them down. And it's like, whoa, that just went over our heads. We have no way to be able to sort that out. The church has tried to. There have been some traditions in the church that have talked about this being uh, the necessity of celebrating the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. They've made this into a sacrament to say that unless you take part in the Lord's Supper, and it really is eating his flesh and drinking his blood to take part in the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, and Mm -hmm. that is a way that you continue to give yourself life that leads to eternal life all the way through your life. So they've taken a very literal uh, or very plain, I would say, uh, understanding of this. Uh, There's a whole other branch of the church that sees this as much more metaphorical and and, uh, symbolic of what Jesus is talking about here. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about the early church. One of the things they were accused of was being cannibals by the Romans because of this, of the the Lord's table and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so that was a smear that was put out there against them, that they were cannibals. So if you think of the response that Jesus would get, there there were people, followers that were leaving, uh, abandoning him because the, the teachings uh, were too hard to understand and they were they were too difficult for them to believe. Yep. I mean, how how could my eternal destiny, if I'm you know in the first century, uh, depend on accepting him and his teaching when he was saying things that were so hard to understand? Well, you know what? I really like this. I can't prove it to be sure, but I suspect that Jesus is testing them here to say, "Are you going to continue to trust me and to depend on me for mm-hmm. eternal life, even though I'm going to teach you some things you're not going to understand?" But what you do understand is enough for you to follow me. And so uh, I love the the disciples. They pass the test here because you're right. uh, John records here that there, uh, verse 64, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, uh, 66, you read this earlier. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Right. It doesn't sound like that's the 12. It sounds like other no. disciples. Other, yeah. And, so, how and Jesus it. says to the 12, 
You do not go away also, do you? And Peter hits it out of the park here. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So if I can speak for Peter here, put words in his mouth, it's like he's saying, I don't know what you're talking about, but we know you're the one and we're hanging on to that. Yeah. And so what I like to tell people, Bill, is don't ever doubt, let the shadows of doubt cast shadows on what you know clearly in the light. And what you know is Jesus is the source of eternal life, and you must depend on him for the forgiveness of sin. So don't let a passage like this cast a shadow on that, where it's, you start going, oh, wait a minute, I can't understand this. I better get this figured out. If I can't figure this out, I don't know if I'm going to believe. That's right. a very dangerous attitude to get into. Right. So in verse 70 that you just read, uh, John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? And I... That, that statement alone makes me think that God chose Abraham and, and blessed him yep. to be a blessing to the nations, just the way he chose Israel to be his treasured possession. And Christ also chose a people for himself. Am, yep. I, am I on the right train here, Mark? I think so. Okay. Yeah. He seems to do a lot of choosing. Well, you know, he is a willful God, and he does what he purposes to do, and I'm, I appreciate that. He just doesn't sit back and let the whole thing uh, devolve uh, by itself. He is purposeful, and if Jesus is anything in the Gospels, he's purposeful. I like that. All right, let me take a short break because we've got some great questions coming in. And if you would like your question answered by Dr. Mark Muska during Ask the Professor Hour, now is the time. Send it over, 877-933-2484. Maybe you've got a question that's just been bugging you for a while. See if we can't get it ironed out. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning. New mercies I see All I have needed Thy hand hath provided Great is Thy faithfulness Lord unto When you hear that song, you could be 100% certain that my guest is Dr. Mark Muska. That is his walk-up music. Always glad I to have Mark. I love that song. You know, I know, Bill, I got a new one that I just love. It's been out for 10 years by Selah, but I just heard it in church the other day. Have you heard this song, You Will Hold Me Fast? That uh, is a beauty. I'll have to check it out. I don't know if I have or not. Oh, man, the lyrics, he, they, they sing, you know, even when I doubt and I go through these times, you will hold me fast. My Savior's love for me, he will hold me fast. Wow, it's good. Uh-huh. So here's a question, Mark. Is this why in the Old Testament God was a specific God about not eating the lifeblood of animals? I'm not sure if I understand your question. 
Uh, you had m- mentioned about um, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and Christians were being accused of cannibal cannibalism. And mm-hmm. I think there was the the question that the listener wants to know is: Is this why in the Old Testament God was uh, specific about not eating the the life blood of animals? Well, is that a, a kosher thing? Uh, it, it it is. It's it's uh, straightforwardly commanded that, and uh, God reprimanded His people when they did eat the the uh, animals that they sacrificed that still had the blood in it. And the key to that is the idea of just what you said there, that the life is in the blood. And so uh, the animal is to be sacrificed, but not to be uh, taking the life, so to speak, of the animal as you sacrifice it for these sins. And it makes perfect sense with Jesus that he is giving us his life on the cross with the blood of, of uh, his sacrifice. And so that is an exception to this. I don't know if that's what the person's getting at, but uh, it's, uh, it's a, uh, very much a part of the law about the, uh, not eating the, the, the uh, animals with their blood in it. Mm-hmm. Another comment made by a listener that their pastor taught not long ago on this Eat My Flesh scripture, and he said that at that time in history, the people wouldn't have recognized him to mean they had to take all or none of him. Oh, hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Isn't that is it? interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So uh, this is a question for Bill, the Book of John expert. I don't know if I've ever claimed to be an expert in anything. <laughs> hey. I don't know why anyone would write that unless they're just trying to be funny, which I appreciate because I appreciate funny. But I'm not an expert on the Book of John. Never have been, and probably never will be. Um, but the question is in John chapter twenty, nineteen to twenty-five, when Jesus appeared to Thomas and the disciples. Mm-hmm. Did he have only scars on his hand and side, or were there scars all over his body from the scourging? And is he and he and and was he scar free because of his resurrected body? Yeah, there's a uh, bunch of questions related there. And I get it. The easy answer is we're not sure. It wasn't yeah. fully described by John, other than to say that it it seems like he has the wounds of the cross there for. Uh, inviting Thomas to put his finger in his hand and his hand in his side. So at least that is there. What other marks he has? Uh, This is something, if you study this with crucifixion and especially the scourging that the Romans gave to Jesus before he was crucified, uh, horrible. Uh, It probably ripped the flesh right off of him uh, with the scourging and uh, horrible wounds would have been left. And uh, honestly, there's no mention of that type of thing, Bill, so I'm not going to hold to that, that those are there. Uh, uh, In the traditions that have crucifixes, they will show Jesus on the cross, and the wounds are there, and the crown of thorns is there. Uh, There's no mention of Jesus' crown of thorns in these appearances, though, to the disciples after his resurrection. So that uh, maybe the writers just didn't mention it, but and maybe it wasn't there either. We don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, he uh, he does bear these wounds. Now, the second part of that question, does uh, I like uh, just to point it to today, presently, and when we see Jesus, when he returns, will he still bear the wounds of the cross? Or was his body further transformed at his ascension that took place in Acts 1? where he left the earth, then was his body completely cleansed, so he doesn't bear any of those wounds. 
And uh, again, we don't have real good scriptural evidence to prove that one way or another. It's conjecture. It's things that we think about. Uh, Personally, I think we may see Jesus with those wounds of the cross just to give us a reminder throughout all eternity how we got there. And yeah. that's because of his death in our place. And so, but I don't know for, uh, for sure. We we have to take that with a uh, uh, with a grain of salt. You know, there's hints in Revelation. It talks about uh, that John uh, sees this uh, lamb, uh, this lamb that ha- had been slain uh, it, it, there in heaven in the throne room. And so, does that mean he still bears those wounds of the cross? It just uh, Jesus. I don't think he's a lamb in heaven. No. So he's speaking symbolically there, but uh, just how far can we take that symbolism? We just don't know. Yeah, it's like when John the Baptist said, you know, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yep. At the baptism, he said it. Yep. All right, the, the follow-up comment was the people of that day would have recognized him to mean that they had to take all or none of him. So anyway, there's the mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. All right, uh, let's see. Um is there anywhere in the Bible that would say anything against mixed marriages? That like, is like a like a like a black and a white person. Yeah, that is a question that has gained a lot of uh, mileage within my lifetime. Uh, that uh, I'm not, I'm sure it's been a question longer than that, but it, there seems to be more and more of a prevalence of this in societies around the world. And so, of course, it's going to have an influence on the church because we live in the world, and and, uh, we have to uh, do business with this. I don't see anything that is addressed to this. Uh, It's easy to take this out of context, I think, Bill, to say that the Jews weren't supposed to marry Gentiles. Uh, and and even Samaritans, uh, but that has more to do with ancestry and the promises of Abraham that were passed down through the generations of Israel. And so I don't think you can make a case against mixed marriage from that line of reasoning. That That's a very weak argument to make. So I don't see anything that is pointing to some prohibition against mixed marriages. But I'm open. If someone can make a, a, a case from the scriptures that this is something that needs to be prohibited, I'm, uh, I'll am i listen. I may not yeah. agree, but I'll listen. Yeah. Now, I know, Mark, crucifixion was meant to be as humiliating as possible. And the question that came in, was Jesus crucified naked? Yeah, I think probably so, mm-hmm. that this is an issue of modesty throughout the centuries uh, toward our Lord. Uh, we don't want people gawking at him because he doesn't have anything on. It's entirely likely that he had no clothes. So they certainly stripped off his outer garments and cast lots for them and everything. But what exactly? Did he still have a loincloth on at that point? I don't know if there's anything definitive that we can point to on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what about uh, Cain? Uh, after when Cain got married, uh, how did that work out? Were there a lot of people? Sure. Were there a lot of people when Cain killed Abel? Right. Who did Cain marry? Were there other humans on the earth at the time? Must have been. Yeah. 
the way I look how, at it. How they got there? Who did uh, uh, the uh, the ancestors of Adam and Eve? Who did they marry? Uh, this is something that the scripture just doesn't give us enough of what was going on to understand that. Did they marry their brothers and sisters? Uh, that grosses out just about any teenage kid listening to this right now to think that they'd marry their sister or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if we can make a case for that, uh, but we're just left to us. There's so many questions left in Genesis, Bill, that we just have, and they're just not addressed. That the writer of Genesis here, Moses, uh, he addresses what he wants people to think about, and yet we're still curious, and so we ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. How are you settling in uh, Sioux Falls? How are we, things? We are settled. So. I know I know you are, but um, and yeah. then how, how is Herb doing? Herb, my good friend, is yep. still uh, battling cancer, okay. and uh, prayers are appreciated for him and his lovely wife, Donna, and uh, it's just, uh, it's a battle. Uh, these, uh, these cancer patients, uh, it's uh, something I admire, their faith and their dependence on the Lord, even though it gets really grim sometimes in the yeah. treatments and uh, to continue to have hope and trust in the Lord. So, yeah, have, have you learned something about your friend Herb through this trial? Much. Uh, how many hours do you have for me to talk to you about well, this? Well, I've got, so. let's see, one, uh, six minutes, <laughs> six seconds. <laughs> yeah. I've learned tremendous amount, and tremendous amount from his wife. She is a champ when it comes to support for him and dependence on Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know how much I appreciate, Mark, you taking the time to do this. I know you put it on your calendar, and then you make, a prior, make it a priority, and that uh, makes me feel very loved. As a friend, and I know my listeners not only love your wisdom, but they just love they love you. So thank you. Thanks, Bill. It's always good to hear from you, friend. All right. I'll talk to you again next time, and I hope it's soon. Okay. Take All care. Right. So long. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. If you missed any of this Ask the Professor Hour, I always say go to the podcast, check it out. He had some great questions answered, and he did a nice job of handling all of them. So thank you for that. MyFaithRadio.com is where you can get the podcast. We're going to take a short break and we come back. Jody Goldie is going to join me. She's a trauma counselor, trauma therapy counselor. And I know there's a lot of people that probably uh, have gone through trauma and they need help. So that's the topic in the next hour. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.